In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. In the previous chapter of St. Luke's Gospel, before our Gospel lesson for today, Jesus tells his disciples, Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you, saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. What a marvelous thing that Jesus says here regarding how we are to treat one another. He's teaching us to be eager to reconcile because he is eager to reconcile. Surely Jesus does not require us to be more patient and forbearing and more merciful than he himself is toward us. What the master requires of his servants, he himself certainly does, right? So what a wonderful thing this means for us in light of our gospel lesson, which we just heard. For in the parable that Jesus tells, we don't simply see how Jesus regards one who responds to a one-time altar call. Instead, we see how Jesus regards one who returns to the mercy seat of God's holy temple seven times, and even 70 times seven times a day. If it is a great task to forgive someone for many sins, I believe it is more difficult for us to forgive someone for one and the same sin many times. From this we observe how kind and patient God is toward us. God's forgiveness is not a mere endowment for us to manage. It is a flowing spring upon which we depend for every passing and every severe desire to quench our thirst. And this is because the basis of his mercy is not in how we react to it, but it is in God. As we sing in the hymn about the foundation of God's mercy, we just sang it last week, "'Twas laid before the world's creation in Christ my Savior's wounds secure." There is the foundation of mercy. It is in Christ. And so he isn't just generous, but persistently so. Or do we truly come here with only new sins every week? Have we truly finally put away all old sins that have already been forgiven? When we say, forgive the sins of my youth, are we really repenting for sins that we committed when we were 14? Or have we not returned to the sins of our youth? Like we can't grow up. Do we not come here with the same old weaknesses and the same tempted hearts that we always had with return to habits that cause us to fall into the same rut again and again? And are we not, because of this, tempted to doubt our sincerity from the last time we repented on account of our repeated need to repent for so many next times? Is this not the frustration behind what St. Paul says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And are not these the sins that tend to bother us the most? The ones we so foolishly return to, and with shame and personal frustration, bring back 
to God with sorrow and regret. These are the sins that we confess unto God our Father today, beseeching him of his great mercy to forgive us for the sake of Christ his Son. And he does. He just did. He gathers under his wings not those who have conquered their lust and anger and greed and vainglory. No, he gathers those who refuse to permit shame and failure to keep them away. He gathers those who by shame and failure are prompted all the more often and eagerly to come near to God and say with the tax collector, though perhaps not daring to lift our eyes to heaven, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, we'll discuss later how this faith is bound to bring forth good works and holy desires. We'll discuss a little the danger of returning to old sins and the power of God's grace to help us overcome temptation. And we'll also consider how important it is to forgive one another. We must consider these things for sure. By no means are we to suppose that this tax collector went home with any wicked intention to continue sinning so that grace may abound. God forbid. Evil intent to sin and saving faith cannot live side by side. So we know that in this tax collector, God who worked faith also worked new and holy desires. We know that. But it is important that we note what Jesus is teaching us and what he may well leave to another Sunday. He is teaching us the most important thing. He did not say that this man went home and got his life together or did anything at all. No, Jesus said he went home justified. He went home clothed in the righteousness that is by faith and not by works. He went home believing God who justifies the ungodly. To go home justified is to go home believing the gospel. If anything else follows, and much will and must follow, to be sure, yet it is above all important that we know what it follows, or it won't follow at all. It follows this, that he confessed his sins to God who forgives sins, and not on account of any plan to improve, not on account of any promise to fast or tithe, but on account of what God promised his son would do to take away the sins of the world. Before any other holy desire in this tax collector was the desire that God worked in his heart to be forgiven, to have peace with God. Baptism saves. Any power it has to produce new motives and impulses in God's newborn children is power that comes from Christ's resurrection. Baptism only indicates and signifies a life of daily repentance and renewal because of its power to save. Any power to give new desires in a sinner is power that comes from its power first to wash away your sins. If baptism didn't first bestow forgiveness and God's favor then any new beginning it symbolized would be a new beginning that you must make by power of your own will. But it was not on his own will that our tax collector depended. No, but we demonstrate the true power of baptism when, like him, 
we cast ourselves onto the good and gracious will of God to have mercy on us and forgive us for Jesus' sake. The tax collector went home a sinner whose sins were forgiven, just like your children go home as baptized sinners. And so you go home with your sins forgiven. You're still a sinner, but God regards you as righteous. And you believe his word. And that's what it means to be justified. You believe what God says, and you don't lose heart. Because he says it. To be justified is to be forgiven. Whatever reforms were already initiated or underway in this tax collector are beside the point. Whatever struggles persisted or ended are beside the point. Before any of that can be considered, whether for the character Jesus introduces for us or for you whom Jesus is now teaching, we must focus where Jesus focuses today. The one who acknowledges his sin to God is the one who goes home justified, righteous, forgiven, with God's favor. To be justified is to have righteousness that stands before God. This man's righteousness did not come from his motives or his regret or his pledge to be better. His righteousness came from God who forgives sin for Jesus' sake. There are no holy desires whatsoever, no good works or godly pursuits, no willingness to make peace with a brother or sister at all that do not begin here with this desire to have your sin, your sin, forgiven by God. Everything flows from the forgiveness of sins. Any subsequent holy life or baptismal renewal that does not begin and build on this foundation is sure to be nothing but hypocrisy. The one who goes home justified is the one who confesses his sin. Therefore, the one who goes home justified is not the one who answers to a persuasive altar call with no need again to confess. No, he is the one who believes the gospel and who comes to hear it. Only Jesus has fulfilled the law. All men have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Only Jesus has a righteousness that stands before God. Jesus is the Son of God made flesh. He took on flesh in order to fulfill all righteousness in our place. He fulfilled all righteousness by his pure and complete obedience to God in all things. He lived such a holy life in order to offer his holy life into death as a perfect sacrifice and to satisfy God's wrath against all sin. Two important things stand out about the tax collector's confession. I'll begin with the second. He identifies himself as a sinner. Despite the first point about sinning and repenting seven times or 77 times, there is no indication, actually, that this man had committed any particular sin. It's a story, after all, and Jesus is telling it. He doesn't mention that he confessed often. He doesn't mention any particular sins. He confessed that he was a sinner. He acknowledged what he was. If there is no emotional or deep spiritual, spiritual turmoil within you about this sin or that, about this habit or that, then say with St. Paul, I know of nothing against myself, yet I am not justified by this. 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4. And know this, whether you know and feel nothing else, you are what you are, a sinner. And you remain a sinner for the rest of your life in need of righteousness. 
And you, you need a righteousness that comes from outside of you. You need Christ's righteousness, whether you feel it or not. The tax collector didn't even say that he was a sinner. He said he was the sinner. He didn't dare look up, but neither did he look around. As far as he was concerned, he was the only sinner, because his sins were the sins he knew and felt and was, and his was the sinful condition he repented of. It was for his sins that he was doomed to hell and afraid to lift up his eyes. We don't confess other people's sins. We confess our own. The second important thing that stands out about the tax collector's confession is this. And the word he uses for mercy. It is a word that explicitly appeals to the sacrifice of Christ. It is the same word that is translated as propitiation elsewhere in the Bible. St. Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 that we are justified freely by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. This means that God sent his son to bear the punishment for your sin. This means that when we confess our sins, we acknowledge what they deserve. We see what they earned by seeing how Jesus paid our penalty on the cross. Where our sins are punished, God takes his anger off of you and places it on his son. That is the image of the cross. St. John writes in his first epistle that Jesus is himself the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the whole world. This means that no sin is excluded. God is not going to discover sin that you successfully hid, that Jesus failed to suffer and die for. He is not going to discover one that perhaps you have invented that Jesus did not suffer and die for. God stands ready to forgive you because his son has shed his blood to turn God's anger from you. This same word for mercy was also used before Jesus was born. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it was used to refer to what we call the mercy seat in the temple, where the blood was sprinkled yearly to atone for the sins of the people and give them access into the grace of God. And this, of course, was a foreshadowing of what God would fulfill in sending his son to take our sins away on the cross. The tax collector was appealing to God's very specific promises when he asked for mercy. He was not asking for God to look the other way or wink. He was asking for God to look straight at his sin, but to look at his sin being paid for by his own appointed sacrifice who would bear it. Jesus, God's appointed sacrifice who bore our sin, is the one who tells us this story. And so, of course, since he writes the lines, so to speak, it is the perfect confession. Jesus is teaching us how to confess. It is concise and clear and says everything. God, he is your judge. His judgment alone matters. Be merciful to me, that is, be propitious to me. Forgive my sins for the sake of Christ's atoning death. That's what propitious means. The sinner, what else are you? What have you done? But begin with what you are, a poor, miserable sinner. 
The greatest work of God is to forgive. That is absolutely true. We cannot thank God for any of his other works if they ever seem more impressive without seeing his greatest work as, as, as to forgive. It is to reconcile poor sinners, rebels to himself. And so also the greatest work of a Christian is to forgive. For brothers to seek to be reconciled with each other. All good works are lesser than this. For no good work flows more directly from this. When Jesus taught the disciples to forgive a brother even seven times a day when he repents, the response the apostles give is moving, I think. You can almost hear how stunned they are. They don't argue. They don't ask for clarification. It's clear enough. They simply say, increase our faith. They recognize that the power that Jesus requires them to have can only be accomplished through faith. So Jesus teaches them how to increase their faith. Soon after this, and right before our lesson this morning, Jesus told a parable about a woman who asked and asked and asked for justice from her city judge. The judge didn't care about her or what she wanted, but he wanted her to stop asking so much, so he gave her the justice she wanted. What a stark contrast this is to God, and this is exactly Jesus' point. The reason God gives us what we ask for, whether it be justice or health or whatever it is, is precisely not so that we stop asking, but rather so that we continue to ask and that we learn to ask for the first thing always first. For from, from asking for this flow, flows every request that God is ever pleased to hear. Luke begins the parable by saying that Jesus spoke a parable that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. And then Jesus closes the parable by saying, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Will he? That's what his apostles asked for more of. Will they continue to pray? Will he find faith to men going to the temple to pray? The one has a heart bursting with confidence. The other seems to have lost heart. That seems all but lost. His heart, as he doesn't even look to God. Two men go into the temple to pray, but only in one does the Son of Man find faith. He finds it in the one who has lost heart in himself. He has found it in the one who has no rightful appeal to his judge except for the mercy promised in Christ. So look more closely. It is the Pharisee who has lost heart. It is the Pharisee who has nothing to ask for from God. He doesn't even pray, strictly speaking. He asks for nothing. To pray is to ask. But he has nothing to ask for. What made his his prayer not good isn't that he asked for material things or selfish things. He didn't ask for anything. Because to ask God for things and to not lose heart is to begin every prayer knowing that the first thing you need always and ever, is mercy. It is from receiving this mercy that all good works flow. This mercy alone extends God's willing heart to yours and makes you willing. This mercy alone 
which covers old sins, even as they repeat and repeat. This mercy alone gives you both the desire to ask God to free you from these shackles and also the power to overcome temptation in its darkest hour. And how important it is to cling to this mercy. Jesus teaches us how important it is by teaching us to show this mercy. For where else will we extend to one another forgiveness, even seven times a day, unless we depend on his mercy just as often? The heartbeat of our faith is mercy, which we receive from God. He gives it abundantly. He doesn't stop. He continues to send us home justified so that we have nothing more to gain or prove, but we have much more to ask for. We do not lose hearts because God loves us, forgives us, and sees us as righteous in Christ his Son, to whom we give all glory and for whose sake we continue to pray and trust in God. In Jesus' name, amen. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus unto eternal life. Amen.